The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we get into God's word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer if necessary to make sure you are in fellowship and filled with the Holy Spirit, and then we'll begin with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege we have to gather together as believers to worship you, to study your word this morning. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in thy light that we see light. It is your word that is absolute truth, and it is through your word and your word under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit that is the means of our sanctification, how we grow and mature in our spiritual life. Now, Father, as we Take this time to submit ourselves to the teaching of your word. We pray that we would be responsive, that under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we would see how these truths and doctrines apply to our own lives, that we may understand these things with clarity and precision, that we may apply them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We continue our study beginning in verse 13. Let me read these three verses. For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care, lest you be consumed by one another. Now, when we come to this particular verse, it starts off with a reminder. A reminder is expressed here in a clause that, that starts off in the Greek with the word gar. One of the things, I think, mo- most elementary principles I learned in Greek was that whenever you see this word, you immediately know that you are getting an explanation an explanation of something that precedes what exactly is the Apostle Paul explaining. Well, he's just made a rather harsh, sarcastic statement in verse 12. He says, Would that those who are troubling you, that is the Judaizers, those who are advocating circumcision, would they, let's translate this correctly, I wish they would just emasculate themselves. If they're going to circumcise themselves, just go all the way which sounds like a very harsh statement, especially to our rather sensitive, hypersensitive, politically correct uh, society and culture today, where any form of of harsh statement is immediately viewed as uncaring, unloving, and intolerant. In fact, in our society today, it seems like the chief social sin, if it's not smoking, it's being intolerant. And the problem is that the way that toleration and tolerance is defined in Scripture is to put up with something. And historically, the way toleration has been defined is to put up with something, to coexist, to not necessarily judge it or put it down. But what has happened in today's society is toleration is being redefined as approval. 
So if you do not approve of a course of action, a lifestyle, certain activities, then you are, by definition, intolerant. And there is nothing worse. There's nothing more narrow-minded or evil in our society today than the person that is intolerant. And when you take that attitude and you put it up against the statements in Scripture, the kinds of statements that the Apostle Paul makes, the kinds of statements that our Lord makes, you just see that there is a tremendous head-to-head clash between the human viewpoint systems that dominate today and the divine viewpoint systems of Scripture. In fact, it's amazing that people can even come to church and really listen to the Word because you just imagine what it's like as a, as a visitor, someone with no frame of reference and no, no background, and they come in and they hear somebody who's teaching doctrine. It would just be so abrasive to their politically correct, shaped views of life and sensitivity and everything else today. So uh, it, it's, it's the, as our culture drifts further and further away from the foundation of God's Word, we're going to see greater and greater clashes between the human viewpoint systems that dominate the thinking of the cosmic system around us and anybody who's operating on divine viewpoint. And that's what happens here. Paul is very strong in his rejection of the teaching of these people. It's not helpful at all. And in our modern society, we would say, well, he's just not very loving. Paul's just so insane. In fact, that's what the liberals say. Liberals often talk about, well, that was just the way Paul was. That was his culture, and we have to get past that. He was shaped by by certain factors in their culture, and that's wrong, and we just have to forget that. And, of course, they deny the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture in the whole process. But you see what happens is our society brings to these questions like love and care a whole series of assumptions and presuppositions. They define love in terms of emotion, sentimentality, the, uh, the result of the psychology in the last hundred years has been to change our focus from the objective external to the subjective internal. And what we focus more and more on is what's going on inside of a person, getting in touch with our emotions and letting our emotions out and, and expressing our emotions and all of this subjectivity, which just emphasizes a lot of, a lot of instability because emotions are inherently unstable and they shift with the circumstances. So that when things are going well, we respond one way, but as soon as things change, we react the other way. And we've seen a lot of that with this, these horrible situations with the, uh, uh, the shootings in the schools and how our federal government just automatically reacts. Lawmakers are reacting emotionally. The culture is reacting emotionally to this rather than stopping and thinking, letting some time go by. They're immediately reacting, passing laws, and it happens across the board. I saw a report on the news this week that in Connecticut, uh, apparently they they discovered that some people had stolen some over-the-counter drugs, aspirin, Tylenol, things like that, and they were selling them at a flea market. So you have the emotional reaction of the state legislature, and they pass a law that you can't sell over-the-counter drugs at flea markets. I mean, everything in our culture is driven by these emotions today so that you take that emotional context, that emotional frame of reference, and then you come and you read that into the Scriptures and you read something like, like this and you're just absolutely appalled at the insensitivity of the Apostle Paul. But the problem is we don't understand love. We define it in terms of emotion. We define it in terms of sentimentality. We define it in terms of, of Hollywood movie concepts of romantic love, but we don't stop and listen to the Word of God teach us and tell us what love is really all about. And there's so many things that the Scripture teaches about love, and we've taught this a lot as we've gone through James in our study on Wednesday night. And it's the more I get into this subject, the more I realize how difficult it is for us to really grasp the multifaceted aspects of the biblical doctrine of love because it is, it, and it runs counter to everything in our sin nature. 
And that's why it's so hard. And that's why I think that love really represents the mature spiritual life because it presupposes a lot of doctrine and a fundamental shift in the way we look at reality and think about life so that we can start applying divine love as a problem-solving device and part of our, the dynamics of our spiritual growth. But love here, what we see here is Paul's tremendous love for the Galatians because he loves them so much that he is insistent that they operate on the truth and not upon a lie. And, of course, that presupposes an absolute view of truth. But Paul realizes that the lie of the Judaizers not only will not save them, and thus if they are not believers in the Galatian congregation, then their soul is in danger of eternal condemnation. And, and what could be more, more loving than to want to discipline and remove and be harsh against those who are teaching something that leads people to eternal condemnation? So Paul the object of Paul's love is those in the congregation and their need for truth. And anyone who comes along to confuse and distort, distract, and to deceive on the basis of false doctrine is dangerous and is life-threatening. So Paul recognizes the fact that the Galatians are being deceived and not only is their eternal destiny perhaps in danger in terms of the lake of fire or heaven, but the quality of their life in terms of their spiritual life, because the Judaizers were also teaching a legalistic method of spiritual life based upon morality and based upon the external observance of the Mosaic law. And so Paul recognizes that if you have absolutes, then what's wrong, anything that distracts from those absolutes leads to a dangerous scenario, life-threatening scenario, both in time and in eternity, and thus the true love is exhibited by uh, disciplining by castigating those who are teaching the lie. So from this we see that love must be based on absolute values, which in turn must be based on absolute virtue. Love, true love, must be based on absolute values, and that in turn must be based upon absolute virtue. Now, there is no absolute virtue in the human realm and in human experience because every human being is tainted by sin and sin nature. So the only place that we have absolute virtue is in the character of God, in the essence of God, because God is absolute righteousness. And that is the source of all virtue. So love, to have any value, if love is going to have any value in any human relationship and not be uh, subservient to the shifting winds of circumstances, then love must be based on an absolute virtue that is grounded in the character of God. So whenever anybody says, I love you, if there's nowhere in their life the virtue of the perfect righteousness of God as a background, then that love has no value. It will change tomorrow when the circumstances change. Mankind lacks absolute virtue, and in order for him to have any kind of enduring love, he must have an absolute foundation for that love. So we learn from this that true love is going to begin with personal love for God the Father. For there to be any true love with any virtue and any significance, with absolute virtue at its core, then it must begin with personal love for God the Father. Now, personal love for God the Father is generated from doctrine. You cannot love someone you do not know. Now, there's a lot of silly people who run around and think you can, but you can't. Love is a result of knowledge. Anyone who has a successful marriage or has spent time with anyone they love knows that over a period of time, you get to know someone. The more you get to know them, the more you love them. You learn what their, what their frailties are. You learn what their strengths are. You forgive their frailties. You focus on their strengths. And that relationship deepens and strengthens and grows. And it's based upon knowledge. Well, with God, there are no frailties. There's no sin. There's no evil in God. God is absolute righteousness. And the more we learn what God has done for us, all that, that God is in his essence and all that he has done for us in salvation and in the prov grace provisions of the spiritual life, the more we are moved to love him as a result. We are moved by gratitude and appreciation for all that he has done for us. So true love for God, personal love for God, begins by learning doctrine. It doesn't just happen. 
You know, just run around and say, oh, isn't it wonderful? Oh, and sing, oh, how I love Jesus 55 times and think that you love the Lord. It takes a lot of time to love the Lord, and there are a lot of things the Scripture says about that, which we'll look at a little later on. So from this we learn that only when God is the model and the motive for love can we fulfill the mandate to love other believers. Because frankly, there are a lot of believers out there whose personalities are not necessarily the favorite personality, that are not a favorite for us in terms of a personal relationship. We might not like the way they are, their personality. We not, may not like other aspects of their life. We may not get along with them. We may not have anything in common with them. Yet the Scripture says that we are mandated to love them. How are we going to be able to do that? Not only that, but how can we love people who in fact are antagonistic to us? How can we show the kind of love the Bible describes to those who are persecuting us, to those who oppress us, to those who are in opposition to us? Only when we have the uh, a virtue-dependent love, dependent upon the virtue of God at the very core, can we love those who are unlovable, unlovely, or who are antagonistic to us. So it all begins with personal love for God, and because of Paul's personal love for God the Father, because of his orientation to doctrine, because of his love for the truth, he is able to exhibit impersonal love towards the Galatian believers and towards the Judaizers, and in the process he castigates the and reproves the uh, Judaizers, and he warns the Galatians not to fall into the false teaching, the legalistic teaching of the Judaizers. Now let's stop and start looking at the whole doctrine of love. We'll begin with nine points on the personal love for God the Father. Point number one, personal love for God the Father is one of the ten stress busters that we have been studying that God has provided for handling the outside pressure of adversity. Now, adversity and prosperity are the two realms of testing that we face in the spiritual life. Now, some of us think that it would just be wonderful if God would give us that prosperity test because we could handle that. We're tired of the adversity test. But the prosperity test is really the hardest of all because then it's easiest for us to get our eyes off of the Lord. There are ten stress busters. These are, in essence, spiritual skills. This is a distillation of all of the application mandates in the Scripture for the spiritual life. You can fit all the mandates of Scripture into one of these ten categories. So this distills the spiritual life into an a easy system of spiritual skills and techniques which we must master in order to advance spiritually. Now, these first five here, confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation, are typical of the baby believer and the infantile believer. It's in spiritual infancy that you master these these techniques and these skills so that you can move forward to spiritual adolescence, which is exemplified by the personal sense of eternal destiny, which is expressed in the Scriptures under the, uh, under the word hope, elpis, confident expectation. It is putting our focus on our eternal destiny and realizing that what we will be in eternity is determined by the choices that we make now. And as we master a personal sense of destiny, then we move into the uh, spiritual skills or stress busters that characterize the mature spiritual life, spiritual adulthood, personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind, occupation with Christ. That is the love triplex that once that is mastered, then we come to a maximum experience of the inner happiness that God has for us. So point number one is that personal love for God is one of the ten stress busters or problem-solving devices that God has given us for handling any and every situation in life. And we must come to this love triplex and master these spiritual skills if we are going to handle the people testing that comes our way in life. Because when things come along with people, 
the way to avoid converting that outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul is through utilization of these three problem-solving devices. Point number two, these stress busters are related to our development in the spiritual life. They are a fortress that God has provided to strengthen our soul and to defend our soul against the outside pressure of adversity. So these stress busters build a fortress around our soul to protect it from the outside pressures of adversity. Point three, the love triplex develops simultaneously. So these three are intertwined and interconnected, and we develop them almost simultaneously. As you advance in personal love for God the Father, it has its impact in your ability to uh, exhibit impersonal love and unconditional love for all mankind and a focus on Jesus Christ and occupation with Christ. So this love triplex develops simultaneously, and these three are intertwined and interconnected. In fact, the whole process of spiritual growth is not flowing through each element here one at a time, but it is a dynamic process. We learn different elements at different times and then apply them. Point number four. When Jesus summarized the entire law, that is, all of the Mosaic law, which is comprised of some 613 commandments, not just ten, the ten are just the introduction. When Jesus summarized the entire law, he did it in terms of love. This is found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 37. There we read, And one of them, a, law, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now this was a quote from Deuteronomy 6, 5 which says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And the principle here is that you have to make God the highest priority in your life. And this happens dynamically as you learn to recover fellowship through confession of sin, and you have the filling of the Holy Spirit, and through the faith rest drill and grace orientation, faith rest drill, you learn the promises of God, the provisions of God. You begin to mix faith with the promises of God, and you apply those in the midst of testing and adversity. And under grace orientation, you begin to learn all that God has freely provided you, that you don't have to earn it or deserve it. You're not trying to gain God's blessing. You don't have to barter with God and say, okay, God, I'm going to start being good, and I'm going to go to church and go to Bible class. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give, and you take care of me and bless me. It doesn't work that way. That's not grace orientation. That's legalism. Grace orientation means that God has given you everything at the moment of salvation. And your responsibility is to begin aligning your thinking with Bible doctrine. This is number five, doctrinal orientation. As you align yourself with doctrinal orientation under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, and you begin by using the faith rest drill and you begin to appreciate God's grace, you begin to grow, and you begin to advance spiritually. Each time you claim a promise, handle an adversity, your faith is strengthened, you learn a little more doctrine, your soul is strengthened, and you begin to grow incrementally in the spiritual life. It takes time. And, and as you do this, you begin to learn about God. You begin to learn all that God has done for you. So you begin to develop some appreciation for who God is and what he has done for you. You learn a little basic doctrine. You learn the essence of God, the ten attributes of God. You begin to see how they work together. And as you learn that, you develop some a little more love for God, and this develops one element at a time, and that motivates you because God, you see all that God has done for you and who he is, and that motivates you to trust him a little more. And you learn a little bit more about grace and you respond in gratitude and you see the dynamic begin to build as you begin to grow and advance. And you realize finally that this is the most important thing in life is to have a relationship with God. That if God does not exist, then nothing matters. But if God does exist, then nothing else matters. And so the personal love for God then becomes the highest priority in your life. 
And you begin to rearrange your schedule. You begin to rearrange how you spend your time. In Ephesians, Paul says that we are to redeem the time. We only have a certain number of days, a certain number of hours, a certain number of minutes in this life. And every minute, every hour is given to us in order to prepare us to spend eternity with God the Father. That's why we're here. We're not here to collect the most toys and to see who wins. We're not here to have a good time, to enjoy entertainment, to become a tremendous success in business. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. Those were all fine, but they must be kept in the proper perspective. The highest priority is our relationship with God because all of this is going to have an impact on eternity. And the 60, 70, 80 years that we have on this earth are nothing compared to eternity. And everything we do in this life determines how we will be, where we will be, what we will be for all eternity with God in heaven. So this is why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That is, heart refers to the mentality of the soul, the innermost sphere of the thinking part, the cognitive function of the soul. So we are to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. That refers to every category of thought. Think about this a minute. Every category of thought. There is no arena of intellectual discipline that is divorced from the loving of God with all your heart, with all your mind. That affects bringing, that means that it's to bring every category of thinking under the control of divine viewpoint. Economics, politics, law, literature, art, music, Whatever field of endeavor there is, whatever arena of thought there is, we are to bring that under the control of divine viewpoint. We are to love the Lord our God with all the mentality of our soul, every thought, bringing every thought captive for Christ. And with all your soul, with every category of your soul, so that your emotional responses respond to the doctrine in the mentality of your soul. With your volition, you choose habitually, you choose positive volition, and you choose to apply doctrine. And then finally, with all thy might, I'm quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5, with all your strength, this emphasizes the intensity that personal love for God now has in its control over your life, and you have made this the highest priority in your life so that the issue is, how does this affect my spiritual life? What am I doing to learn doctrine? What am I doing to apply doctrine? Is getting to church, to Bible class, the highest priority? Am I able to rearrange my schedule, whatever it may involve, in order to make sure that I am getting doctrine? And if I can't be there for some reason, because I have to work or because there's some unavoidable conflict, then I am going to make sure I get the tapes and listen to the tapes, because it is vital that I understand this information and that I get it into my soul and make it a part of my practice. Now, after Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He goes on to say, this is the great and foremost commandment, but the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the word there for neighbor is the word placeon, which refers to anyone who comes into your sphere of life. Someone you work with, someone you work out with, someone you live next door to. We use the word neighbor to refer to somebody next door, down the street, or across the street. But this, re- this word refers to anyone who is in your periphery, anyone you come in contact with. It might be for just a short time. It may be just someone you get in a conversation with in the waiting room at the doctor's office. For that short period of time, that person is your neighbor. Whoever it may be, you may not know them, you may not know their name, but you are to love them as yourself. Jesus concludes and says, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now that was point number four. When Jesus summarized the entire law, he did it in terms of love. One, personal love for God the Father first. And secondly, impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind, stated as, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So point number five, how do... We love the Lord. How do we measure our love for God the Father? Is it measured by 
leaving church on Sunday morning and thinking, oh, wasn't that wonderful? I just feel like I worship today. I, I was taken into the throne room of God. The singing by the choir was such rapture. Now, we don't have a choir, but that's how many people think about worship and love for God, and they measure it by their emotional response. But that's not how the Bible measures our love for God. Listen to the criteria the Bible sets up. Deuteronomy 11.1 says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep His charge, His statutes, His ordinances, and His commandments. The love for the Lord there is related to obedience to divine mandates. Deuteronomy 11.13, And it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. So again, it's related to priorities, to obedience, to mandates, and to serving God. Deuteronomy 11.22 says, For if you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I am commanding you to do it, to love the Lord your God and what? To walk in all His ways and hold fast to Him. Exclusivity, passion, intensity for God is part of loving the Lord and obedience to His mandates. This includes rejecting false doctrine, which implies that you know doctrine well enough to be able to spot and reject false doctrine. In order to know doctrine well enough to be able to spot and reject false doctrine... That means that you have to spend a lot of time in Bible class learning what the Bible teaches so you can spot the error. You don't have to spend years studying false teaching and false teachers, cults and everything else. Not that that's not profitable and helpful, but there are uh, the, the best way to spot a counterfeit is to know what the genuine article is. And if you know what the truth of Scripture is, then it will be easy to spot the counterfeit. Deuteronomy 13.3 says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet, that is a false prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, the person who says that God has spoken to them. For the Lord your God is testing you. See, God tests you through these false teachers. God is testing the church in America through all these false teachers who claim that God speaks to them and speaks through them. And they are false teachers under the, te- under the category of Deuteronomy chapter 13. And the principles laid down there by spotting a false prophet or a false teacher. And they're there. God allows them to be here in order to test us to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So rejecting false doctrine is part of loving the Lord. Deuteronomy 19.9, if you carefully observe all this commandment which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways always. Deuteronomy 36, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Deuteronomy 30:16, In that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments that you may live and multiply. Joshua 23:11, So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. And then Psalm 31:23, Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses, this is divine discipline, fully recompenses the arrogant doer, the person who is not really applying the word, just says he is, and is operating on arrogance. So we see here that loving the Lord is exemplified by the degree of obedience in a person's life to the mandates and protocols of Scripture. On the other hand, those who are arrogant and are not applying the Word are going to be recipients of divine discipline. This is why grace orientation, which includes humility and teachability, which is orientation to the authority of God, is foundational and precedes personal love for God the Father. You can't love God the Father unless you have a certain level of humility and teachability which comes from grace orientation. This provides the precedent, the foundation for developing personal love for God the Father. Psalm 97.10 says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of His godly one. He delivers them from the hands 
of the wicked. Now, when we get into the New Testament, Jesus reaffirms these same principles. In John chapter 14, he, he relates obedience to love. John 14:15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 14:21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 14, and then verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So what's the connection? If you want to know if you have personal love for God the Father, it is reflected in your degree of application of doctrine, making learning doctrine the highest priority of your life and then applying it, taking it through the whole process of learning under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, learning it, knowing it, understanding it as Gnosis doctrine, and then under the filling of the Holy Spirit, believing it when it's transferred into the soul as Epinosis doctrine, and then applying it in the testing of life. Point number six, the point that Jesus is making in reiterating the Old Testament passage is that our highest priority, the highest priority for the believer is personal love for God the Father which derives first by learning doctrine and is at its essence, listen to this, and is at its essence an activity of the cognitive function of the mentality of the soul that works itself out in terms of obedience to divine mandates. I'm going to say that again. It's something to think about. It's not emotion. It's not your feeling. Jesus is saying that our highest priority is to be personal love for God the Father. This is what should drive us. It should be a passion. It should, uh, it should characterize and affect everything in our lives. It's our highest priority, and it derives first from learning doctrine. We know God. We know him a little bit. We know what he's done to save us as a brand-new believer and now we want to learn about him. We learn, begin with basics. We learn the essence of God. We learn the Trinity. We learn the provisions of God. So at its essence, personal love for God is an activity not of the emotion, but of the cognitive function of the mentality of the soul. You have to know God before you can love him. Now, I'm not saying you won't have an emotional response, because you will. You're human. But don't confuse the emotional response with the reality of divine love, which is in the cognitive part of the, of the soul. You see, we're human and we have an emotion, and that emotion is a responder. Here's the soul pictured here in, inside the fortress. The mentality is where we hold the things that we believe. It's the thinking part of the soul. The emotion is the responder. It responds to what we believe with our mentality. So as we learn about God in the mentality of the soul, it will have a response with emotion. That response will differ. It may not always be the same because we're not always the same. Some days we feel we're very up emotionally. Some days we're down emotionally. Sometimes people come to, come to Bible class and they learn something that takes them to emotional rapture. They're excited. It just floods their soul with a fresh realization of who God is and what he has done for them. And then what happens is they, they set that as a criterion and they're constantly trying to achieve that mountaintop experience again. But once you learn that doctrine, it's not going to have the same impact on you that it did the first time you heard it. And yet, this is what many people are trying to do is, is when they're first saved, it's exciting. And they're trying to recover that level of excitement, that level of emotional enthusiasm. And yet, as you grow, you're just not going to respond the same way because it's no longer fresh. It's no longer new. You know it. You've learned it. You're going to continue to grow. Not that there won't be times like that in your spiritual life. There will. It's not the criteria. So there will always be that emotional response, but that is not the essence 
of loving God. The essence of loving God is learning who he is, learn, and that's by learning doctrine, which is the mind of Christ. And it works itself out in terms of obedience to divine mandates. Point number seven. Relationship with God takes priority. Relationship with God takes priority over relationships with men. Relationship with God takes priority over relationships with men. Relationship with God affects your relationship with others. We do not adjust our relationship with people first so that we can think that because we get along well with others that we have a good relationship with God. See, what happens in most churches is they put this emphasis on the horizontal relationships with other people. And they define fellowship in terms of social interaction between believers. But the Bible does not say that fellowship is social interaction with other believers. In fact, when you do have fellowship spoken of in terms of human fellowship, the center point of that social interaction is doctrine and Christ. So that what we are doing right now is the height of the biblical concept of Christian fellowship. We are studying the Word of God and we are focused on that. It is not getting together with some other Christians and going out and playing volleyball or basketball or going down to the beach or going to a movie or going to the theater. That's fun. That's enjoyable. I'm not running that down. But that's not Christian fellowship. Now, if you sit down with some other believers and you go out to dinner or you go over to your house and you sit down and you start talking about some doctrine and trying to figure some things out, now you're suddenly moving from Christian social interaction into Christian fellowship. The Christian fellowship has at its core fellowship with God. In the early church, one of the passages that turn with me, I want to look at this and nail this down. One of the things that people get all confused about is a passage in Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Incidentally, this passage talks about what our priorities should be and what the priorities of the early church were. Acts 2.42, and they were continually devoting themselves. This is their priority. It was continuous. Everything in their lives was controlled by this priority. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's the first thing? The first thing listed is doctrine, the apostles' teaching. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Oh, that means they were getting together after uh, church and they had some uh, coffee cake and coffee and some orange juice and they were sitting around talking about how things went down at the office that week. Is that what that means? It's not what that means. Look at what comes out. Most people look at this in the English and they think there are four things listed here. There are only two things listed here. Doctrine and fellowship, period. The last two things, the breaking of bread, which is a reference to the Lord's table, and prayer, are that, that phrase is appositional to fellowship. That means an, an, a, the focus or the thrust of an appositional phrase is to explain something. So fellowship is defined in terms of, number one, the Lord's table, and number two, prayer. So fellowship in this passage is talking about fellowship with man? No. It's talking about fellowship with God. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship with God as expressed through the Lord's table and prayer. This was the priority of their life. Learning doctrine and fellowship with God. Not fellowship with man. This wasn't the the new Sunday social hour, so we can all get together and have a good time. The focus was on doctrine, learning the Word of God. So relationship with God comes first, and that has its effect on our relationship with people. The issue is, first and foremost, your relationship with God. Get that straight, and then other relationships will begin to fall in line. But if you don't get your relationship with God straight, you will never have successful relationships. Now, you may have relationships that last a long time, but in my experience, people cover up a lot of things. They don't talk about a lot of things. There are a lot of things that they just uh, 
can't discuss because they don't have common interests and they're afraid of offending somebody. And I've discovered in relationships with unbelievers that no matter how much you may have in common in one area of your life, because the focal point, the center point of your life is not the Word of God, you don't share that essence of spiritual life with them. There are many things you just cannot talk about because whatever you say is going to come from divine viewpoint and that is going to be too abrasive, too offensive for the unbeliever. So you just can't go there. You just can't talk about those things if you're going to continue to have any level of relationship with them. And what I'm talking about is successful, intimate, growing human relationships. Relationship with God takes priority. If you get that straight, then your relationships with people will come into line. Point nine. Personal love for God is the motivation and provides the only virtue and integrity which allows unconditional love to function. Remember, we started at the beginning by saying that for love to have any value, it must be based on something that doesn't change. Too often what happens is when people say, I love you, the reason they love you is because you're attractive in some way, physically or mentally, personality-wise, some common level of interest, but they love you because of something in your life. They love you because of something you have that they have some affinity for. And as soon as that changes, well, so long, Charlie. That's it. I'm going to go find somebody else. So for love to have any endurance, it must be based on something that never changes. And the only thing that never changes is God and His eternal character. So for love to have any value, it must be based on the character of God. That's the point of this first principle here in point nine. Personal love for God is the motivation and provides the only virtue and integrity for unconditional love. It, personal love for God motivates impersonal love for all mankind. Now, that covers personal love for God in those first nine points. That's not the end. We're going to go on to point ten, but in point ten we start shifting to what we mean by impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind. Now, some people don't like the term impersonal love, and I think when I first heard it, I thought, what in the world is that? Love implies some kind of personal relationship. Well, not if you understand it the way I'm explaining it. If loving your neighbor as yourself means not loving the neighbor next door whom you know by name, but loving whoever or whomever comes in your sphere of influence, you may not know them. You may never know them. You may not even know their name. That means that you don't have a personal relationship with them. You don't have any personal affinity with them. You may not even like them very much. It might even be the IRS agent that's called you in for, a, for an audit and is getting ready to really take you to the cleaners. And instead of reacting in anger, you're going to respond under the filling of the Holy Spirit with impersonal love, which is more than just an absence of mental attitude sins. Now, that's a real test. <laughs> Point number 10, Matthew 22:39. Jesus says, The second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's the passage we have here in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, turn back with me there. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a quote from Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18, and this is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. It's quoted in Matthew 19.19. Matthew 22:39, Mark 12:31, Luke 10:27, Romans 13:9, Galatians 5:14, and in James 2:8 where it is called the royal law. And we have studied that extensively in James, and we're going to take some time to study it extensively here. James renames this the royal law, which is a 
unique title in the New Testament. Why does James rename it the royal law? First of all, because it is exemplified by our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he exemplified it in the incarnation and crucifixion when he went to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins. That exemplified love for an enemy. And he is royalty, so it is the royal law. Secondly, it is called the royal law because it is the unique calling card for a member of the royal family of God. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and at the moment you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you are entered into the family of God, and it is a royal family. In John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, that is, by that impersonal love for other believers... All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, what exactly does that mean? If this is going to be the hallmark that characterizes a believer, that is the ultimate, I think, apologetic for what we believe. In other words, not apologetic in the sense of apology, but as the Bible uses the word, the ultimate defense of the truth of our position is that it radically changes us from being a self-centered, arrogant individual under the control of the sin nature, and we're all that way, no matter how nice you are, no matter how sweet your personality might be. And there's some people out there that are just so wonderful, and they're just so sweet, and they never say a harsh word, and they're so polite, and they're so kind. And the Bible just says some terrible things about those people. You know, they're arrogant And arrogance can express itself in terms of pseudo-humility and pseudo-love and pseudo-compassion. But you just put some of those people in a tough situation, like the fur on a cat's back stands up and claws come out, and you really have some trouble. What is it that's going to overcome that so that we can consistently, that was a key word, wasn't it, consistently apply impersonal love for all mankind. You see, this is where the Christian life starts getting rugged. It's when the Lord takes us through those, those childhood problem-solving devices and spiritual skills and through the adolescent spiritual skills and then starts dealing with us in terms of people testing. So we start getting the opportunity to apply personal love for God the Father and impersonal love for all mankind as problem-solving devices. That's where it really gets tough. Now, when we look at these passages, there's some hard things that are said here. There are some things that we can look at and we can say, well, I just can't imagine that that really means what it says, so maybe this applies to another dispensation. Oh, well, some of these passages we're going to look at are, in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's how that's been handled by some dispensationalists is to put all of that into, this is kingdom law, so that doesn't apply today, so we'll let you just go past there, and uh, <clears throat> we'll find something else to study and apply, because this is awfully difficult. Well, I think that the Sermon on the Mount has a lot of different interpretive problems with it, as far as how it is in, handled as interpretation, but remember, even in the Old Testament, we find principles to apply. But no matter how you understand the Sermon on the Mount, whether you take it as a rule for the kingdom and messianic age, or whether you try to apply it to today, it's not the subject. Because in dispensationalism, one of the fundamental hermeneutical principles is that Old Testament mandates are no longer valid unless they are specifically repeated for the church age. Now, if it is specifically repeated for the church age, then it doesn't matter if it's also in the context of a millennial passage. If it is a mandate in the Old Testament in Leviticus, and it is a mandate in the era of the Incarnation, the first Messianic age when Jesus was on the earth, if it is a mandate for the millennial kingdom, and it is a mandate in the church age, then no matter what we say about it or what is said about it biblically in any dispensation, it helps us understand what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Have I made that clear? So even if you go into the Sermon on the Mount and it sounds harsh, still explaining 
the same principle. So you can't just dust it off and say, well, that's millennial, so let's not go there. So we're going to have to stop and look at some tough passages in this process. So what we understand from this is the principle of loving others as ourself continues. It's one of those mandates that is continuous throughout every dispensation. Well, we have to ask ourselves just what does it mean to love others as ourselves? Of course, primarily the Bible must define that. We can't go out into the world. The world, because our culture is psychologized, has its own definition. See, the psychological concept of the world is that man's basic problem is not that he has a sin nature, because man is basically good and perfectible. That's why you see all this hand-wringing today about all these problems that we're facing socially is because if man is basically perfectible, then we have to do something to perfect him. And you have all the hand-wringing because you're operating on a false view of mankind and a false view of society. But if you understand that everybody is basically evil and they are under the control of their sin nature, then you sort of expect that when people are divorced from Scripture in a doctrinal basis that they're going to act like animals. In fact, the kingdom of man is continually uh, uh, portrayed as bestial in Daniel when it is the kingdom of the Son, that is when you have a man. And I think that's in Daniel chapter 6. You have four or five successive pictures of human kingdoms, Rome, Greece, Babylon, and they're all pictured and portrayed by animals because that is the bestial nature of man in independence from God. But when it is the millennial kingdom, you have one in appearance as the Son of Man come, comes. That is a perfect man. But psychologized America defines our problem as self-image. So we have to deal with self-image and we have to teach people to love themselves because the problem is that they don't love themselves. Now this idea has roots in the 19th century philosophy of a man named Friedrich Nietzsche and Nietzsche hated Christianity and Nietzsche said that the problem in love, the reason men couldn't love other people is because they didn't first love themselves. And so he said, if you want to love others, first you have to learn to love yourself sufficiently. Now this idea was eventually picked up by a psychotherapist in the earlier part of this century by the name of Eric Fromm, who popularized the concept, and, uh, and he influenced a uh, California TV preacher by the name of Robert Schuller. And Schuller really popularized this idea that what the Bible means when it says you can love your neighbor as yourself is that first you have to learn to love yourself. You have to have a positive self-image. In fact, he wrote a book called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. And that came out in the early 80s and he sent a free copy to every pastor in the country. And in that book he says that man's basic problem isn't sin. That's okay if you, back in the Reformation to talk about it in terms of sin, but we're more enlightened now in the 20th century and we, we just don't have that bad a view of man. We know that he just doesn't love himself properly. And Jesus died on the cross in order to give you a positive self-image. Because if God loved you that much, then you ought to love yourself. So let's all feel good about ourselves and stand up and hug the person next to you and go home and, and feel good about life. Well, that's pretty much what dominates most churches and most pulpits today. And now you know where that came from. But if you look at Leviticus 19.18, that's not the context. That's not what this is talking about. We're about out of time, so we'll come back and start here next Sunday morning as we continue to understand what it means to love others as ourselves with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word and to see these concepts. And as hard as it is for us to understand and, and even harder to apply the principles related to impersonal love or unconditional love for others, especially those who are antagonistic, hostile to us or who reject us, Father, we know that only as we continue to advance to spiritual maturity will we be able to uh, apply these things under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, so that we can master these problems, these adversities, pass the tests, and advance to spiritual maturity.
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their salvation, who does not know of their eternal destiny, that they would realize right now that they have been given an incredible gift, offered an incredible gift of eternal life. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for every sin in human history and every single sin they'll ever commit, every single sin they've ever committed. Nothing is too great for your grace. And all they have to do is put their faith and trust in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you'd help us to remember these things and to see how they apply in our day-to-day life as we face especially the adversity of people testing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.